0: We're looking this morning at the essentials of uh, biblical worship. I want to talk a little bit firstly about the difference between elements of worship and circumstances. I touched on this in in a few weeks back uh, where we dealt with the two predominant philosophies of worship. The first being the the regulative principle which states only what is prescribed in Scripture may be incorporated into our worship of God. And then the other one being the normative principle. These are theological terms. The normative principle, which states if God does not prohibit something, then we may include it in worship. The regulative principle, as you can see, relies on what the Scriptures have taught The normative principle relies upon the silence of Scripture. Mm, Already, I think we can see trouble here. The normative principle believes that anything is permissible if there's no specific prohibition. So it interprets silence as a green light to proceed. We learn that the normative principle is much too broad. Wow. Talk about opening something up to the mind and imagination of men. Well, God didn't prohibit it. It's like saying that God has been silent about what he will accept as worship, and we may use his silence to invent our own style of worship and all the accoutrements that go along with it. (laughs) That is rampant in Christendom today. That's exactly what's going on. We discovered, however, that whether adding to worship what God did not command as the unauthorized fire of Nadab and Abihu, or subtracting from worship what God requires in the case of Uzziah, who uh, touched the ark that was prohibited for him to do, we in both cases God dealt with these. Human inventions to worship in a most severe way. And if you think that was just Old Testament, when we come to the New Testament, he did the same thing with regard to Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. You don't mess with what God has prescribed in terms of worship. In all this, we discover that the silence of Scripture is not a safe green light to proceed when worshiping God. The only safe, the only acceptable guide is to follow the book. Follow the book. Amen. To read and obey what God has listed as the essential elements that must be part of true and approved worship of God. Now I understand that if we're learning these things, we don't know them all necessarily right up front, that there has to be this learning curve. But when once we're instructed in these things, then... We need to be sure that we're practicing. Now, that's the essentials of worship. But over against the essentials of worship, or the elements, the theological term is the elements of worship, there are the circumstances of worship. The functional aspects that enable worship to occur. For example, a place to meet. If you're going to have... Collective worship, you have to have a place to meet, but not necessarily a church building. Okay? A place to sit. Okay? (laughs) But not necessarily pews. Right? Musical instruments, but not necessarily a a piano or an electronic piano that can play organ music as well. Hymnals, computers, sound amplification, central heating, these, all these are the circumstances of worship and they vary from country to country. I might even say with regard to political climate, or geography, or weather. What's the principle? Here it is. All circumstances of worship must facilitate and serve the elements of worship, which are the essentials. The circumstances must not take over and drown out the essentials. So, we can be flexible on the circumstances of worship because they vary. We must be firm on the essentials. What's the premise? Well, if we learn and know the essentials, then the circumstances of worship, they will kind of resolve themselves, won't they? I remember one Sunday evening here at Thornville when I was preaching, and there was a terrible, a ferocious thunderstorm raging outside. The wind was howling. We could all hear it. We had the trees on this side of the building at that time. The limbs were snapping and falling to the ground. I mean, it was really a a doozy. So suddenly, uh, as one might expect, we lost the electricity. It was gone, and the lights went out. Now, this was because it was a dark storm. When the lights went out, it was dark in here. So here we are. We're all sitting in the dark. Maybe some of you will remember this. We could have closed the service and gone home, though I doubt that anyone would have wanted to even try to drive in that kind of weather. But, here we go. Having electricity, having an amplifier for voice, are not essential to preaching or to listening to the preaching of God's word. I only needed a light source to see my notes and read the Bible. So guess what? Someone fetched a flashlight from their car, and I continued on. And no one needs light to hear gospel preaching. So the congregation sat in the dark, literally, and listened as I taught. The essential of worship, namely preaching and hearing God's word, that was maintained. While the circumstance of worship, electric lights in the auditorium, was altered by improvisation with a flashlight. And I stood here with a flashlight, read my notes, read the scriptures, and preached. So what, what's the principle you're getting at? Here it is. We need to be firm on the elements of worship. We need to be flexible on the circumstances of worship. Do you know that this is how the Christians survived the genocide of the persecution of the Roman Empire. When Rome came after the Christians in the days of Paul, and it was started about in the days of Paul's execution, A.D. 68. Peter was a, uh, executed in A.D. 70. Paul in A.D. 68. By A.D. 70-71, all of the apostles had been martyred for their faith. Every one of them. What did the Christians do? They met in the catacombs Rome in the death chambers underneath the city where they buried their dead. And if you were to go, and you can take a tour of the catacombs, you will see the Christian symbols of the faith etched in the walls, the symbols of the fish, the cross, things of that nature. That's where they met. That's the circumstances but the essential they kept. We're going to worship God even if we have to crawl in all. The same thing happened with the purges of the Chinese government under Mao. The churches of China went underground. Some of it very literally. And even today, they have to be very cautious. How they worship. They worship in house churches. You don't usually have a big church building with Baptist church written on the side of it or Presbyterian, or whatever, Methodist, or whatever. It's all done kind of in clandestine, quietly, because there's a government that is oppressive to anything with regard to Christian. Circumstances change. You find a place. You find a way to keep the essentials going. Now, having said that, let's look then secondly here, at the essential of public, notice my words, public prayer. The essential of public prayer. By the time of the Supreme Court ban on Bible reading in schools in 1963 under the atheist lawsuit by Madeleine Murray O'Hare, a decision one year earlier banned prayer and had already been in place. But, Neither the ban on prayer nor the ban on Bible reading in public schools forbade the private prayer of students nor carrying and reading one's Bible by students, although although in recent years school administrators have not always understood this and have harassed students who carry and read their Bibles in school or who say something that might be a prayer. Just recently in Tennessee, it was just a report of this list last week. Someone sneezed in the classroom and a little girl said, bless you. She was expelled from the class. And the teacher said, we'll not have any religious speech in this classroom. Bless you? You see where our country has come? No wonder parents are pulling their kids out of public schools. That's another reason. And they are not always Christian uh, Christian families that are doing that. The secularists are pulling their kids out of of, uh, public school because of that kind of radicalism. Well, the goal of the two rulings on prayer and banning Bible reading is to eradicate any and all public display of faith through prayer and reading the scriptures. Other incidents have involved the removal of crosses from public land used as memorials to fallen soldiers. I'm just waiting for the day when they start talking about revamping Arlington Cemetery, which is just full of white crosses. Uh, That day's coming. Or attempts, and I call them attempts because they they haven't materialized so far, but to ban prayer used to open each day of Congress. Recently, though, a Supreme Court ruling has approved opening prayers for public meetings. Don't know if you know that. In my um, in my um, uh, involvement with uh, some of the committees in in Flint and so forth, working for seniors, <clears throat> they always call on me, knowing that I'm a pastor. They call on me to open the m- meeting with uh, prayer, and I know what sitting there, I I know that there's people of different persuasions with regard to faith and so forth, but they ask the Baptist pastor to pray, and I do. Much of the rhetoric in these cases centers around personal religious beliefs and practices. Why the need to pray in public, we're being asked. Uh, Can't you be satisfied to pray at home uh, or pray silently in your head? Well, of course, children in public schools are permitted to do that. No one can read their thoughts, so they do do that. We would not deny that, yes, we can pray in private, and yes, we can read our Bibles in the seclusion of our own homes. But when it comes to public worship, which is what we're talking about here in this series, God intends that His people vocalize their praise, their petitions, their thanksgivings, and the like, to him within the public arena. For example, in 1 Kings 8, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon postulates before God a number of consequences of conduct that would require Israel to pray as a nation. Let me read some of these for you. He says, hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When a man wrongs his neighbor, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on his own head what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. 1 Kings 8, verse 30. Or again, When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn their back to you and confess your name, when they turn back to you rather and confess your name, praying and making supplication in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land that you gave to their fathers. First Kings eight, verse thirty three. Again, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you. And when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn, their, and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people, Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land that you gave your people for an inheritance. 1 Kings 8, verse 35. Verse 37 mentions famines and plagues. Verse 39 mentions personal sin. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart. For you alone know the hearts of all men. Verse 41 refers to foreigners showing up at the door who do not know God, but they have heard of God's reputation. So he says, Even these prayers, Solomon requests of God, that he answer them so that what so that God's name would be magnified throughout the nations you know if an unbeliever could come in and pray his prayer and God would answer that wouldn't that get wouldn't that get around <laughs> wouldn't the nations soon hear about that and then we read this when Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out towards heaven, he stood and he blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice saying, Praise be to the Lord who has given us rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. No one word has failed of all the good promises that he gave through his servant Moses. First Kings 8 verses 54 and following. After 14 days of animal sacrifices in worship of God, We read, on the following day, he sent the people away. They blessed the king, and then they went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people. 1 Kings 8, verse 66. Wow. Lots going on here in the dedication of the temple and praying collectively. Again, in Moses' concluding address to Israel before They were about to enter into the land of Canaan. He summed up the special privilege of prayer Israel enjoyed before God. And here's the way he said it. Listen to this. What other nation is so great as to have their God near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I am setting before you today. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7 and 8. Wow, that says a lot, doesn't it? Many people pray. Some pray when they're in trouble and they can't figure out how to rectify their predicament. Some pray when they find themselves deprived of financial help or in financial need some pray for good health some pray for a new job for a peaceful environment for their family and community there's been a lot of that going on because of ferguson missouri this week where there's been prayer vigils because of the riots and the lootings and the shootings every night god may answer these prayers if if along with these requests there's repentance and contrition for sinning against him. But where these things are missing, God has determined, if you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you, and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me, when I called, and no one gave heed, when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice, and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn, will laugh at your distress. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster and distress and trouble overwhelm you, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but they'll not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill him, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. All that from Proverbs 1, 23 through 33. So, There is examples in scripture of God's people meeting publicly to pray. And we were even given some some scenarios what they prayed about and how the Lord responded to that. And also (laughs) what the Lord has to say if they ignore his word. So they go hand in hand. This idea of public prayer and the public study of the scriptures goes hand to hand. Now, having said that, I want us to look, secondly, then, at the characteristics of public, we're talking about public prayer. You'll notice in your bulletin outline, firstly, then, public prayer confesses both public and private sin. We saw some of this in Solomon's prayer of dedication for the newly constructed temple. But if I could say it this way, all of his references... We're in the future. Let me read some of them again, just quickly. When a man wrongs his neighbor. When your people Israel have been defeated in battle by an enemy. See, it's, it's when these things occur. Knowing the history of Israel and their propensity to disobey God, Solomon is not in error to postulate such things. But what is more comforting to us as sinners... Is to show and to be able to know that when we pray collectively in repentance, God has a history of responding favorably. The people's prayer in Nehemiah comes to mind. After the rebuild of the wall around Jerusalem was completed, the people told Ezra the scribe to read from the book of the law. I find that refreshing. They've done all this hard manual labor; they built, rebuilt the wall and they say to Ezra you know read 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 from the book of the law to us read this remember they don't have bibles they don't have their personal copies so they have to go to the guy that has a copy Ezra's a scribe so he has a copy and we read he read it aloud let me let me back up it says that he read from the book of the law he read it aloud from daybreak till noon just think about that could you handle that? He read it aloud from daybreak till noon in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. Others who could understand. So I imagine that meant children of, you know, that could understand. They weren't little babies. They might have been there in their mother's arms, but the idea was reading to the children as well. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. They bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Nehemiah 8, verse 1 and following. Now this was the public reading of the scriptures. I'm going to deal with that later in another message. But I want you to notice the effect it had upon the people who were glued to every word as Ezra read. In the very next chapter, Nehemiah 9, and 23 days later, it says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. And those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They got this from Moses reading the word of the law. They stood in their places. Now notice, they collectively stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers, that is, their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Nehemiah 9, the first three verses. And I would say that the sincerity of this public prayer, the sincerity of it is found in chapter 9, verse 38, which shows that they were under conviction of what they heard. And in that verse we read, In view of this, it's the people speaking, In view of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. They made an agreement. They made a pact with God. And they had the spiritual leaders of Israel sign the agreement and fix their seals to it. Okay, what were some of the details of the agreement? Here they are, Nehemiah 10, verse 30 and following. I'm reading scripture. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and we will cancel all debts. If you know anything about the law, that's the year of Jubilee that they're talking about. We assume, I'm reading scripture, we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on that table, for the regular grain offerings, for the burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, new moon festivals and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, The Levites and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. You ever wonder where they got the wood? Here it is. They wrote out in their agreement, you're on duty this week, you're on duty next month, and so forth to bring wood for the sacrifices as it is written in the law. We, not the wood part, but you know the idea of the sacrifice part. So they're figuring out how are we going to do this. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is written in the law. We will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storehouse of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, the first of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees, and of our new wine and oil, and we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithe in all the towns where we work. Nehemiah 10, verse 30 and following. Brother, you know what this is? This is a spiritual revival taking place. That's what this is. Ezra, read us from the book of the law. So he gets up and he begins to read the law and all the regulations that God had put down for the theocracy. (laughs) 24 days later, they go home and they, they begin to think about this. Well, we haven't done this. And do that. We haven't been doing this. And it's all because the people attentively listened to Ezra reading the scriptures to them that they, can I say, under conviction for their failures and their sin, fasted and prayed in confession before God. Great example, corporate prayer. Last Wednesday, we had corporate prayer at Thornville Church, which we do the third Wednesday of every month. You know how many people were here? And a visiting child. Four adults and a visiting child. What might God do for our church if all the able-bodied showed up God is looking for genuineness in our faith. And this first characteristic of public prayer, the confession of both public and private sin, is the best starting point. By the way, on Wednesday night, I can't speak for the ladies because we break up except for the third Wednesday. We break up into men praying, women praying. Women stay here. The men pray out in the in the vestibule uh, out here. But I can tell you that the men, pr- when we pray publicly, we pray and confess our sins, and we pray and confess the sins of Thornville Church. And I would encourage and this is not a rebuke; it's just an encouragement that those are asked who are asked to pray on Sunday morning worship. And, Jared, I don't know if we can do this, but if we could get a microphone on a stand so it goes out on the Internet as well. That the men who lead in prayer think about our corporate sins and our personal sins, that God might bless our church as we align ourselves with the fact that we are a people in need of redemption. We are a people that are in need of forgiveness if we expect the blessing of God. And so the first characteristic of public prayer is the confession of both public and private sin. And I say it's the first point, and it sets the pace for everything else, because whatever else Israel did in obedience to the law, sacrificing burnt offerings, observing holy days, burning of incense, do you know that God protested that? Saying, I'll read it for you, stop bringing meaningless offerings, I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your appointed feasts. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Oh, we read that and we say, what's, what's, what's the problem? God goes on, Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves, this is plural, not yourself, make yourselves collectively as a church, make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. As Ezra's generation did, I might add. And all of that from Isaiah 1, verse 13, following. So let us do the same that God may hear from heaven Come near to our need. Public prayer confesses both public and private sin. You know, sometimes the Baptists are um, accused of being, um, how should I say it, holier than thou, better than other people, know-it-alls, all those kind of things. I, I know why some of that is true. It's because we're always quoting the Bible to people. We're we're saying, well, the Bible says, and so on and so forth. So we come across as these guys are always quoting the Bible. Nobody's right but them, and so forth. But while that accusation is not true in terms of that, sometimes the accusations are true in terms of haughtiness or pride or arrogance. And we have nothing to be proud about other than the grace of God. Let's brag on Jesus. I'm all for that. But let's not brag on being Baptist or being Sovereign Grace Baptist. Let's not brag about any of that. Let's brag on Christ and His grace to us because He has disclosed Himself to us. He's opened our eyes to see and to believe. He's granted us faith. And He's even granted us repentance to turn away from our sin. Secondly, public prayer praises God for who He is and for what He's done. If you were to return into Nehemiah 9, you can read the people's prayer. And in those prayers, you can read their thoughts that they expressed to God on that occasion. What did they say? Verse 5 and following. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessings and praise. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens. Verse 6. The earth and all that is on it the sea and all that is in it, you give life to everything and the multitudes of the heavens worship you. You, 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 see that? And in verse 7, they pray, you are the Lord God who chose Abram, Abram means father, brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and named him Abraham which means father of many, not just of Jews, you see, but the father of all who are of the same faith of Abraham, according to Galatians 3 and verse 7. Verse 9, you saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but hurled their pursuers into the depths. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, decrees and commands that are good. Verse 15, in their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, to their thirst you brought them water from the rock. In all of this public prayer, these people are doing what? They are rehearsing can I say it this way? They are reminding themselves of God's mercy and grace showered upon them. They even mentioned their rebellion and their stiff-necked disobedience to God's commands. But in so doing, it is to remind themselves. Let me read it for you. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Verse So if they're going to talk about their sin, and they admit it, they do it so that they can praise God for His forgiveness and His mercy, not to gloat on their sin. Now, how much more appropriate in our public prayers to remind ourselves of the spiritual significance of the things that they prayed about? For example, are we not Abraham's (laughs) spiritual children? and so heirs of God's promises to him. Let me read it for you. It's in Romans 9, verse 8. It is not the natural children, the Jews, who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Or again, he writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, verse 28 and 29. Well, isn't that something we could pray about? I mean, publicly, that's a a spiritual blessing. And when Israel ate of the manna from heaven, did not Jesus explain the truth? Of that saying. I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who gave you. The bread from heaven. But it is my father who gives you. The true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he. Who comes down from heaven. And gives life. To the world. Wow. Wow. John 6 verse 32 and 33. There's the bread of heaven to praise God about in our prayers. When Israel drank of the water from the rock, Paul says, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4. Now, brethren, Ezra's Ezra's audience did not know that. But we know it. (laughs) We know it. So, if they remembered and praised God for his physical sustenance in the wilderness, ought not we to pray with praise to God for sustaining us through the wilderness of sin and enabling us to ingest the water, Jesus, Jesus, which will become in believers a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 4, verse 14. Public prayer should praise God for who and what He is and what He's done. That's part of it. And then thirdly, public prayer summons God's blessing and guidance on the political issues of the day. In our meditation reading today, we read in Timothy about the biblical protocol of worship. And Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, first 4. Verses. Not only are we to submit to the powers that be, because they make, can make it rough for us if we become anarchists, Romans 13, we're to pray for our leaders that it may go well with us as believers. Notice how prayerful people become in times of trouble. Have you ever noticed that? Do you know that God's people need to pray before the trouble? We need to pray to avert the trouble. What good can praying do? Solomon says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he directs it like a watercourse, a river, wherever he pleases. Ezra's acknowledgement Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord. My God was on me. I took courage and I gathered leading men from Israel to go with me. That is back to Jerusalem. Ezra 7, verse 27 and 28. That's how. That's the good praying for officials can do. Nehemiah, his account of himself was near, almost identical. Let me read it for you. The king said to me, what is it you want? He, he looks at Nehemiah. Nehemiah's kind of He's downcast. He's, Got his eyes towards the floor and and the king senses that there's, there's something bothering Nehemiah. Something is weighing heavily on his mind. And so the king said to him, what is it? What is it that you want? Listen to Nehemiah. Then I pray to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Nehemiah 2, verse 4 and 5. Why should we pray for kings and for those in authority? Because God moves those in authority to do what he wants done as we pray. I think it was a shame and a disgrace that Christians did not go to the polls to vote in the last election. And Brother Doug touched on that in the adult class this morning. Well, it is even a greater travesty when we do not pray for the people who rule over us. Not in any way excusing their sinful decisions, but acknowledging that, like the master over the slave, you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. Ephesians 6, verse 9. These people have to give an account, just like a master over a slave. Well, we may be in the slave category, we may be in the servant category, but we can pray. It was as the church gathered in the house of John Mark to pray that Peter escaped miraculously from prison and was spared Herod's intended execution. You can read about it in Acts twelve. He had already been successful with the apostle James, beheading him. And when the Jews clapped their hands and said, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah," Herod thought, "Oh, I know how to please these Jews some more. I'll do this again." And he had Peter arrested. And after the holiday, he expected to bring Peter forth and have him executed. God's praying people were responsible for the release of Miriam Abrams a Sudanese Christian woman who refused to recant her faith on threat of execution by the Muslim authorities yet she her husband her baby are safe today in the United States because God's people held prayer vir- vigils for her no other reason So my question is this. What more might God do for us if we became dedicated to public prayer? They have a prayer day in Lapeer every year. They have a time where they read the scriptures and pray. That's well and good. It is. For a community to do that. But Thornville needs to think about doing this on a regular basis. Public prayer is so very important. So where are you going to be on Wednesday night for public prayer? I hope you're going to be here. You're saying you're trying to make us feel guilty. Yes, I'm trying to make you feel guilty. But I'm trying to do so with the Word of God and with the encouragement that comes from the Word of God. We need to pray for new families, more families with children. We need to pray for those that are suffering. We need to pray, yes, for the sick, for the dying like Jim Armstrong. We need to pray for... These things. Say, well, I can pray at home. I know that. I do know that. And I know you guys do pray at home. And you pray in your private devotions. I know that too. But there's that special public prayer that God delights in and answers. And if we can be honest with ourselves in, in our prayers. And by the way, I have to go back again. The men are very honest with themselves on Wednesday night. And if the ladies are doing the same, that's fine. And then when we gather together uh, to pray at the third Wednesday of the month, if we can be honest with ourselves with regard to the sins of our church and the sins of our person, you will see things happen with regard to Thornville that have not happened heretofore. Let's pray. Our Father, teach us this first element of public worship, the idea of public prayer. And bring into our public prayer some of these elements that we have talked about. Praising you for who and what you are. Yes, praying for our government officials and that you will change the hearts of wicked men or that you will bypass them or frustrate their evil plans. And yes, praying for our own church sins and our personal sins that would be like Achan in the camp hindering what God would otherwise do for us as, as, as his people. I pray, Lord, that we are not Ananias and Sapphira, that we are not Achan of Israel of old. I pray that whatever the heart issues are, that we would willingly confess those, and that you would be pleased to forgive us and to move us from a time of lethargy and indifference and despondency to jubilant joy. We'd like to go home like Ezra's crowd did. After they heard the word of God preached, after the public prayers and confessions of the people, after they even wrote it down and had their leaders document, this is what we're going to do, this, 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 this. To go home rejoicing and glad of heart, knowing that God heard their petitions, heard from heaven, answered, and forgave them. Lord, forgive us, we pray.